Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth and Failure. This show highlights extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up. I'll have conversations with a wide range of profiles from entrepreneurs and athletes, investors to educators, you name it. I love hearing people's different journeys. For me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow come from the struggle, the pain, the defeat. And I hope hearing these stories inspire you to not fear that messy middle or failure, but rather motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. For more information, please visit growthandfailure.com for more updates. And please write a review if you can. They really do help other people find this show. Thanks for listening. This is the story of Molly Bloom entrepreneur, speaker, author, and so much more. Now, if you haven't read her book, the fantastic memoir called Molly's Game, or watched the movie led by the brilliant Aaron Sorkin that has Jessica Chastain, Idris Elba, Kevin Costner, go read it and watch it now. I mean, it is an injection of energy and intrigue and ultimately of inspiration. In this episode, I wish I had five or 10 or 20 more hours to ask Molly all of my questions. We do cover a lot, though. We cover her childhood, chasing winters, and how she became an incredible competitive skier. Now, this is despite the fact that at the age of 12, Molly was diagnosed with severe scoliosis and had to have spinal fusion surgery, where doctors and her coaches encouraged her to not ski competitively again. But of course she did, and she became a top-ranked women's mogul skier. Now, unfortunately, a completely rare thing happened. And during the Olympic trials, her skis get caught on a frozen pine needle, which caused her skis to release midair and led to a devastating crash, forcing her into early retirement. Now, this accident and recovery alone is something I'd be inspired by just to have around my show. But I've realized that with Molly Bloom, the extraordinary, the rare, the unbelievable actually happens consistently for her. And so from there, we discuss how she moves to L.A., to give herself a break from the cold. And while getting in some nice, warm California weather, she starts this transformative journey where she starts hosting high-stakes poker games, first in LA and then moving to New York. And what started out with Hollywood A-list celebrities grew to this enormous game filled with Wall Street titans and politicians, actors, athletes, pretty much the who's who of nearly every major industry or country around the world. And in one night, she saw someone lose $100 million in a single night, which goes back to the unbelievable. I mean, there it is again. And we also discuss how the poker games ended, why Molly ended up being convicted with a felony and not misdemeanor charges. And it's how she dealt with the conviction, how she convinced Aaron Sorkin to create this movie about her life that would inspire many. But what inspires me the most about Molly is not just her story filled with resilience and grit but ultimately about connection and growth. And at the end of every show, I ask my guests about their biggest growth moment from failure. And Molly's answer really surprised me. It also inspires me to reflect more deeply about myself and to pay attention to the things that truly matter. And when you realize that you have enough. Please enjoy this interview with the extraordinary Molly Bloom. Hi, Molly. Welcome to the show. Hi, and thanks for having me. 
Oh my gosh, thank you for coming on. I'm delighted to have you on. Actually, first, I would like to thank Allie for the wonderful introduction many years ago. And I would like to get her on the pod soon too, but I know she's busy crushing the investment world. So I'll get on her dance (laughs) card soon enough. But I'm super excited to have you on the show. And I wasn't sure how to start your show episode because your story is so unique and not many guests of mine have made a movie and been a convicted felon, all those (laughs) things that I'm sure we could talk about and more. But I always like to start at the very beginning because I feel like it's so interesting and I'm always curious about it. So if you don't mind rewinding your very long highlight reel all the way back (laughs) and sharing more about your family and where you grew up. So I grew up in a small town called Loveland. In a lot of ways, it was a very idyllic childhood. We skied on the weekends and we water skied on the lake during the summers. I had two parents who didn't take shortcuts. They were so involved and so committed and both had really valuable wisdom to impart. My mom really instilled in us this belief that we should leave the world a better place than we found it, and that integrity matters and kindness matters. She also had this very unique way of when something wasn't right, she would go into this mode of fixing it. Everything from the car air conditioning to I remember going to her in elementary school and saying, Mom, in history, all we learn about are men. And she went to my school First, she tried to get more women into the curriculum. They wouldn't budge on that. And so she designated this time that I would go to the library with the librarian, Tina Sekovic, and read biographies on women. She instilled this entrepreneurial problem solving. We don't just have to deal with something that's unsatisfactory. And that, I think, imprinted very strongly on all of us. My dad was more of the strive for excellence. You need to learn to be disciplined. He called it constructive suffering. (laughs) He taught us that in order to be good at something or learn a skill or be successful in the world, that you have to reframe discomfort, not pour oxygen on it. He also taught me something so incredibly important, which is your problem is not the voice in your head. Your problem is that you're listening to it. Early mindfulness, I guess. And also he did a lot of work with us on fear. Now, those were the good parts of the family and parents. And like any family, (laughs) there was the drama. And my dad and I had a really tough relationship because I did not want to recognize authority at all. I very much wanted to do things my way. I had this fire in me that I didn't know how to manage. That combined with, he was pretty hard on all of us, but harder on me, which I found out later in life why. It was simultaneously a very rich beautiful childhood and very challenging at times. These are the clues to why we end up where we end up. We loved skiing and we all ended up competing in skiing. Jeremy and I decided that we wanted to go all the way to the Olympics. And Jeremy was a legitimate prodigy and I was not. (laughs) (laughs) But I had a lot of determination That served me well because at 12 years old, I was diagnosed with really severe scoliosis and my spine was curved at 63 degrees. I had to have this crazy surgery where they basically tried to straighten my spinal cord and then fuse the top 11 vertebrae together to make a solid bone and then put two metal rods on the sides because they don't want it to move after they correct it. But it basically renders your thoracic spine immovable. And I wanted to ski moguls 
for the Olympics. <laughs> and my doctors <laughs> were like, not going to happen. And everyone was like, not going to happen. A lot of other sports out there that you can choose, but this was my thing and I was stubborn. And so I think this was the point in my childhood where I really discovered what has been a completely life-changing skill set, which is to start to cultivate this inner belief in yourself that's not reliant on what the outside world thinks. Parents, doctors, coaches, I had to tune them all out and just go inside for the answers. And that has both served me well and screwed me up <laughs> at times. But I think it's really something that is pretty valuable to cultivate. But I think later in life, you learn that you combine it with some humility (laughs) and that's a better approach. I mean, this is incredible because my niece is 13 now and that's around the time that you were diagnosed, had the surgery and decided to will your way physically and mentally to going back to skiing moguls (laughs) against the judgment of your parents, your doctors, all of that. And so you got that so early on and you say your brother's like a prodigy, but you are too in terms of mental strength in so many ways because you got it pretty early on. And so after that, you decided to still compete. And I hate to summarize it because the movie does it so well, but for those who never saw the movie and haven't read the book, which I highly recommend, what happened after you decided, okay, I'm going to, after surgery, recover and compete again? I had success. At 19, I made the US ski team and I was skiing for the US development team. And at 20... I was ranked third overall in North America. My brother and I had the same finish that year on the tour. And then that same year, if you made it to senior nationals, it was an Olympic qualifier. So I got to compete at an Olympic qualifier event, really at the top of my game. I was having this great run and I skied over this tiny little piece of pine bough that wedged itself in between my boot and binding and my ski pre-released in the air and I fell pretty hard. And ultimately decided that that was the end of my skiing career because I tripped on a stick. (laughs) And that would happen many, many more times in my life. (laughs) They talked about a one in a billion chance that one millimeter of a pine needle would dislodge your boot from your skis. Incredible. I know you also went to college during this. If you had made the Olympics, what were you thinking about post-college, what you wanted to do after the Olympic ski run? I was so sure that I wanted to go to law school and I was really interested in civil rights law. I had taken the LSAT. For some reason, Aaron Sorkin was overly generous with my LSAT score in the movie. (laughs) But I did pretty well. I studied really hard for it. I was in the process of applying to law school, but I couldn't get my head straight for the first time really in my life. I even did a study abroad in the Greek islands and I just couldn't get it together. And so I decided I would take one more year off with just zero responsibility. I was at burnout. I'd had this very highly regimented life put so much pressure on myself and it didn't work out. Input did not equal output. And there is just this raging sense of injustice inside me. It was all consuming. And so I decided I was just going to go be a kid for a year. And I wanted to go somewhere warm because I'd been chasing winter my whole life. So I went to LA because everyone knows if you're trying to find yourself that you go to LA, like obviously (laughs) that's the worst idea on the planet. I didn't even think about the culture of LA. I didn't know anything about it. I was just, this is the shortest drive to somewhere warm that's by the ocean from Colorado. And I have to drive there. Your first days there, what did you do? I'm assuming you didn't have the support of your parents. You didn't know many people, but what was your plan? I literally got there the next day, drove to Beverly Hills and started just walking around applying for restaurant jobs 
I got this job, this restaurant in Beverly Hills. On my first day or second day, this really, really old guy, like grandpa, came in and hit on me. And I was mortified. I was so pissed off. And I remember going to my boss and saying, this guy is a pedophile. (laughs) I was like, this is a crime. What's going on here? And they're like, oh, he's one of our best customers. You just need to wait on it. And I was like, screw this. I walked out and then I walked into this other restaurant and it was a fine dining restaurant. I lied to the owners and told them that I knew everything about fine dining. I don't know how I thought I was going to fake that. And they fired me a week later and they're like, you're such a terrible waitress and you don't know anything about fine dining. But I had created this rapport with them. And so they hired me as their personal assistant at their real estate development firm. That was an adventure. And then one day my boss walked in the office and he said something that sounded pretty innocent at the time, but man, it would change my whole life. (laughs) He said, I want you to serve drinks at my poker game tomorrow night. I didn't know anything about poker, about this world. And like anyone, I'd like to be somewhat prepared. So I remember Googling silly things like what kind of music do poker players like to listen to and what do they eat? And then I made this terrible playlist with songs like The Gambler and Night Moves on it. (laughs) (laughs) Who doesn't love some Kenny Rogers? That's amazing. (laughs) I was like, what are good poker songs? (laughs) And went and picked up this cheese plate at Gelson's, the most run-of-the-mill, non-fancy cheese plate. And I just showed up to this game. The people that sat down at this table absolutely blew my mind. I talk a lot about the celebrities, but it wasn't just the celebrities. It was the politicians and the power brokers from finance and the billionaires that you see on CNBC and the art dealers and the people from the tech world. I mean, it was just insane. And you get this group of people in this room and they're very comfortable and they're speaking freely. I was just so compelled and intrigued and really primed also for a rebellion. Oh my gosh. There's so many questions I have to go from this path, but here you are, you're playing Kenny Rogers, a gambler. People are probably looking at you like this is the cheesiest playlist ever with your Gelson's cheese plate. From the first game to then the six years in the summary that you had access to the biggest billionaires, the politicians, the tech executives, I mean, pretty much the who's who, and not only Hollywood, but the world. To be a fly in all, which you were, how much did you learn, not about the business that these individuals were at, but about their life? We could do 10 podcasts on the lessons. Yeah. <laughs> but I think I realized a couple of really important things. And one of the most important things I realized is that being successful being powerful, being rich, being famous, it is not a foregone conclusion that you are going to enjoy your life or be happy. These seeds were planted early on. They did not take hold until much later. But the absolute knowing of that truth later down the road to some pretty intense liberation. Another incredibly important lesson is how dangerous an ego is and how people, when they live in emotional decision-making, how unsustainable that is in the world. Also, I learned a lot about calculated risk. I would say before I started running these games, I lived very much in emotion. I lived very much impulsive risk-taking. And I learned from observing these people 
to be a strategist and to take calculated risk. And as Liv Forey says, to not overprivilege the gut, to rely heavily on objective information that you can glean. Changed me. The incredible part is at such an early age, this is in your early to mid-20s, you built this business of and touched all parts of the business. So you were part in the strategy planning of all these events that you would build. It started with the Gelson's Cheese Blade that ended up being the most luxe and including fine dining, going back to how you started. <laughs> you, got fired. you were recruiting, you were doing sales, marketing, operations, accounting, thinking about leverage and all of that in your early 20s which is an incredible business empire that you built. And from that, at the time, whether it's the first year, second year, third year, was it about money? Was it about power? Was it about status? I think everything came down to power for me. The money made me feel like I had power. The access made me feel like I had power. Again, later, I realized what true power is. It's not money or access. It's being able to manage yourself in a world that is going to be turbulent and to not have this ultra reliance on the fickle forces of money and popularity and all that stuff. But for me, coming from a place where I felt pretty powerless first under the authoritative (laughs) dictatorship of my parents and then going to LA and having these tough bosses who didn't want to grant you any agency or sovereignty starting to own these games, be the bank, be able to extend credit and own this thing that owned them was heady, intoxicating, and ultimately my demise. But early days, it was like a movie scene. I mean, I would pick up a million dollars in cash and be in the penthouse hotel at the nicest hotel. And I'm from Loveland, Colorado. (laughs) (laughs) And all these things were so compelling. But I was also learning about the world and buying art and investing in stocks. And the information part was super fascinating too. I love the word you use is intoxicating. Just one of the exposure and the access, that is a perfect word for it. One thing I was interested in because you did this for five or six years in LA, had the most extraordinary success until an unnamed player who you were so, in my mind, kind to not name because you could really name a lot of things going back to the word integrity and yours and how you were raised, you decided to not name a lot of people, but one player decided to really much screw you and say, you know what, I'm going to take this game away from you. You built this up all over again in New York and made it a bigger scale around the world and not just in the Hollywood zip code. When you rebuilt it in New York, what was your strategy for the LA 2.0? It took me from a somewhat trusting, slightly naive woman to being much more hardened and familiar with how the world works. On top of that, in New York, naivete was not getting you anywhere. (laughs) There were these grown men who ran games who would send their little sycophants to tell me that I should leave town and all this stuff. They would try to send people to my games to lose a bunch of money and not pay. I had to be incredibly vigilant, incredibly smart, and not trusting. This is a completely ungoverned, unregulated world, completely run by men. There were no game runners, to my knowledge, that were women and men that have been doing it for 20 years. And New York was crazy. I mean, everyone was trying to come and run a scam or run a hustle. And so I had to grow up real fast. 
in doing that, you lose a bit of your innocence and you lose a bit of the joy of believing that the world is a place to trust. But again, it was a great education and it required me to become even more strategic and even sharper. What happened in New York is I was like, I'm going to build an empire. I don't just want one game. I want 10 games. And I want to own the high stakes and the low stakes and the mid stakes and and the variations of Texas Hold'em. And I'm going to go big. Within a couple months, I was running New York City poker, but I got caught up. In LA and early days in New York, I still was running things. I think putting intelligence first, putting integrity first, I started to get really caught up. And I started to make small micro decisions that were not aligned wholly with my core set of values, which were intelligence, heart. And I got into a really bad place. And you don't get there overnight. You get there in inches. When you were thinking about building this empire to not only have one game, but 10 games, really the game to really own it, why not there open up or get a license so that ultimately when you started taking the rake, that would have been covered? Or does it have to be an institution and it can't be home-based games? It would have to be at a casino. It would have been basically impossible. But just a clue into the mindset. Up until this point, they tried to bring up poker and cobble it into the federal statute in New York. And they had never been successful. It had always been thrown out because of the language. The games that qualified for violation of the federal statute were termed games of chance, blackjack, games like that. And poker was a game of skill. So it had habitually been thrown out. Even if I was taking a rake, in my mind, according to the research that my attorneys had done, it was a misdemeanor. We're talking about a crime that's in the same category as trespassing. And I was making four to $6 million a year and living this incredible life. So taking a rake wasn't as risky at that time as it sounded. I had full knowledge that it was still breaking a law. I really always expected for cops to come at some point, but I never in a million years expected to be arrested by 17 FBI agents with machine guns. I never in a million years expected to log into my bank account and see an account balance of negative $9 million. Those things just were not on my radar. But then a lot of crazy things that I never thought would happen happened in New York. I got assaulted by the mob. It just got really nuts. (laughs) Ultimately, you were discovered to have taken the rake. From that moment on to the actual conviction How long did that take? About two years. And in those two years, you did a lot of progress in terms of immediately just cleaning yourself of all that toxicity. Can you walk through that? And how, for the people who are listening and saying, okay, things can get carried away, whether it's five, six, seven years, how do you then really clean up everything so quickly? I lost everything. I lost all my money. I was pretty reliant on Adderall and Benzos at the time. Adderall allowed me to stay up all the hours in those games, benzos to come down and to deal with anxiety. I was drinking a lot and I found myself really in a place where I was completely dependent on these substances. So I went to rehab. Then I moved in with my mom. I had to do two really powerful, important, hard things. First, I had to admit that this whole thing was my fault. And then I had to try to forgive myself. Fortunately, because I went to rehab and I was working with a sponsor in in AA at the time. I had a guide 
because the 12 steps are a guide to walking into the shadows, going into the shadows of your life of, okay, let's look at the damage. Let's look at the things that disturb me. Let's look at the harm I've done. And then let's start to forgive other people and yourself. I'm not an AA anymore, but it was the best education of my life. And it was such a powerful guide to working through the human condition, the trauma we accrue, the things that disturb us, the maladaptive strategies we've developed to keep ourselves safe in the world. I mean, it was just a beautiful path for that. So that helped a lot. And finally, I felt very cleansed of this, or at least I'd made a good start of it. And I moved back to LA and I had no idea that the entire time I was doing this stuff, I had written the book. Did you write the book during those two years? Yeah. After rehab, I got into the book right away. And that was really hard to go into that, but it was also cathartic. And I moved back to LA. I had just gotten a job. Two weeks later, I, for what to me seemed completely out of the blue, I got arrested in the middle of the night by 17 FBI agents. And they put me in handcuffs, this piece of paper in front of me that said the United States of America versus Molly Bloom. And from there, I was in a surreal dream slash nightmare. I remember they took me to prison and no one will give me any answers. I hadn't run a game in two years. I've been living this like principled, value-driven life and doing all this hard work. And then I saw a lot of people that used to play in my game brought to prison. And then all of a sudden we're in New York at this arraignment and I'm getting indicted in this very serious indictment with mostly Russian mobsters I had never heard of in my entire life, including this guy that lives in Moscow and is called the Vor. He's the godfather of Russian organized crime. <laughs> and this courtroom was nuts. There was all these Russian criminals on one side and their beautiful, fancy wives on the other side. And I'm just sitting there with my cute mom and I'm like, this isn't real. But it was, it was very real. For those who don't know, can you rewind about why? Because initially you thought this would be worst case scenario, a misdemeanor. And then why in the world would 17 FBI agents with all these guns... <laughs> arrest you in the middle of the night, but why so many? And so when did it go from misdemeanor to felony? Around the time that I started taking a rape in New York City, there was a case in the Eastern District of New York. And again, poker was thrown out. The government challenged it. They won. And so it set new precedent. That happened. And then I didn't know this because most people don't, but when they seized my assets, they had already put a confidential informant in my game. And so he tracked that I'd been taking a rake. And they basically explained it to me as your property of your personhood does not have the presumption of innocence. And if we have good information that you've been breaking the law, we can take it. And they gave me the option to go in and work with them on, go on record, talk about these games that I had been running and everything. But now it seemed like it was a crime. My attorneys and I said, we don't want to do that. But if you want to talk to me, if there is going to be a criminal investigation, which they said there wasn't, we're here. And so my attorney said, they're not going to come get you in the middle of the night. They'll just call me because that's what they said they would do. Initially, you decided to plead not guilty. Can you walk through your decision-making process of how you decided ultimately to plead guilty? Like at the arraignment, everyone enters in a plea of not guilty. My attorney, Jim Walden, really thought I had a good case, but it would cost me $3 million government already has all my money. It's not like I was going to go back to running games. So I didn't have the resources. That was the main thing. The prosecutors wanted me to become a confidential informant. 
and they were willing to give some money back and give me a deferred prosecution, which would have kept me out of prison. I want to be really clear, like if I had real criminals in my game that I knew about what they were doing and causing real harm in society, if there had been an Epstein or a Weinstein in my game, you wouldn't even had to indict me. I would have gladly given testimony towards someone like that. But these were people that were pretty good people. Maybe they're betting sports. Maybe they had written a couple of checks to finance someone's campaign from a different account. Who knows? They were these things that were not, in my mind, serious infractions. The only reason that I would have been doing this was to get myself out of trouble. A couple of years back, I had done this really profound work of, Molly, this is all your fault. You knew the score. You live in the United States of America. You are white. You're a woman. You had great parents. You had an adventure, but you did this. (laughs) And so I just really was clear that I needed to stand for the consequences of my actions to turn around and ruin all these other lives to get out of trouble did not seem like the way. Most people would have said, well, let's do what's best for me. And the idea of going to prison for as long as you could have would have scared most people into making the decision that was probably different than yours. And ultimately, if you can share what your conviction was and what what the sentence was. I didn't have to go to prison. I had to pay pretty big restitution fine and do 200 hours community service. People ask me all the time, why do you think that was the outcome? And I think it was multifactorial. I think it has everything to do with Jim Walden. Jim Walden was my attorney. He has a stellar reputation with the government. He was a former federal prosecutor who was fearless in going after the five crime families. He's a person who is seeped in integrity, was able to make good relationships with the prosecutors, and was really able to teach me and school me on how to create this authentic story of a person who is contrite and feels bad. Whereas a lot of the people in my indictment hired hotshot defense attorneys that the government hates. They were sitting courtside at the Knicks. They didn't operate strategically. They just thought money and sharky lawyers were going to help them. We had a judge who was young, Obama appointed, 41 years old. It was not about it. And then I also had some incredible character letters from former professors and coaches, some judges, and the woman that I did community service at her organization in downtown LA. And we were just able to really paint an authentic, truthful picture of someone who made big mistakes, but was really adamant about doing better. Amazing. And we'll get into the movie in a moment. But in the movie, the selection process to get the Jim Walden, it was something like you had interviewed 12 people and 11 said, get the hell out of here. Yes. (laughs) So he was the last one. Was that process authentic or what was the process of finding Jim Walden? That was an authentic process. After you get arrested by 17 FBI agents, you get put in jail. (laughs) And then I had a day and a half to get to New York City and find an attorney that's going to represent me. And I don't have a dime. And my mom just had to put her house up. My dad and I aren't talking. And... Jordan's finishing med school at Harvard and Jeremy just getting inducted into Colorado Sports Hall of Fame. And it's like, holy (laughs) shit, this is bad. So I get to New York and seven out of eight attorneys said, no retainer, no business. And we sat down with Jim and he was like, the rest of your life will be determined by the next couple months. 
And he said, I'm going to help you. And he said, we'll figure it out. He was at Gibson Dunn at the time. And that it's not easy to get Gibson Dunn to yeah. <laughs> take an IOU. But he was able to do that. And he saved me. It would have been so different without Jim Walden. And he, to this day, is a close friend and someone who I just admire and respect so much. Sometimes I speak to defense attorneys and I'm like, you have such an opportunity in this moment to help someone get on the right path. Just having someone like Jim Walden believe in me and champion me was incredible. I want to read the acknowledgments that you wrote in the book for him because it was so beautiful. And you said, Jim Walden, you are a true gladiator. Your integrity, compassion, and unwavering commitment to justice restored my hope in the darkest hour. I've never met the man, but you can tell so much about someone by just those words alone and those three sentences. So it gives me chills. What an incredible person. Thanks to his help and leading by integrity, you have a really manageable sentence. Most people would then carry on their day and just move along, but not Molly Bloom. You decided to take your book and make it into a movie, an Aaron Sorkin directorial debut (laughs) movie. So all the things you do is so extreme. What were you thinking of? Okay, I have my book. It's great. What amazing sentence that you were fortunate enough to have received. What were you thinking after that in terms of, yes, this book needs to be a movie or how did that go about? Not having to go to jail was an incredible moment. But then reality sets in. In that moment, I am 35 years old, millions of dollars in debt, a convicted felon, somewhat of a social pariah. (laughs) (laughs) The tablets are calling me the Heidi Slice of poker. Love me or hate me or don't think about me, but I was the bank for a $100 million poker game. It was more involved than that. What are the options that are going to address the ruin that I just outlined? And I really came down to, it's a very unique story and stories can be very powerful. What I thought about is I need to put my real resume at scale (laughs) if I ever want (laughs) any opportunity ever again. And I needed a rebrand because the tabloids and everything, listen, I got to do a movie. I love how you think about that versus if I think about updating my resume, I'm like, oh, should I change the font? Should I include a picture? (laughs) No, you're like, let's make this a Hollywood movie with Aaron Sorkin and let's cast Jessica Chastain and Idris Elba. Okay. (laughs) Desperate times, Ian. Survival (laughs) mode is a whole other beast. The way I got to Aaron Sorkin was I started to take meetings in Hollywood and I would get all these great meetings. And in the room, you could definitely read people are so fascinated. And then it would just be, crickets. And then I would get a phone call from an assistant that said they were passing. And so finally I got real with someone and I was like, can you tell me what's really going on here? And the person was clear with me. He said, it's a great story. We all love it. There are really powerful people who are making phone calls. And so that was pretty daunting. Again, like I'm supposed to go up against these people who are super powerful and making phone calls. And why would anyone want to tell my story? and walk into that. And then I just got really clear that if I could find somebody really powerful and super creative and get them interested, they don't have to play politics. They don't need these people. These people need them. And so I made the short list of the most successful, most prolific screenwriters and directors. And on the top of my list was Aaron Sorkin. He's my favorite writer. He's also the highest paid screenwriter in the world, which 
is very diagnostic to how often he has success. So then I just started trying to get a meeting with him. He's never written a movie with a woman as the lead. And he's certainly not going to start with the poker princess. Like, you know, just say stuff like that. I had the idea in my head. I, I just had a feeling about it. And I was like, well, I just need a meeting. I just need to hear it from him. And so finally, my dear friend and my entertainment lawyer, Ken Hertz said, I know Aaron well. He's a personal friend. I can ask for a personal favor. So I flew to LA and I was so nervous, but also excited. It felt like full circle. In places like LA and New York, there's this energy where you can just tell that your life could change in a moment. And I'd done a lot of research about him and tried to figure out authentically what parts of my story would really be appealing to him. And I didn't know this, but walking into the meeting, he was like, this girl doesn't need me. She needs a publicist. She just wants to be famous. I told him my story. And when I was done, he had a pretty good poker face, but he would tell me later that he knew he wanted to write it before he was out of the parking lot. And he even was working on a current project that he stepped away from. Then things started to change, but I was still doing community service and <laughs> state department still had my passport and I was under federal probation. And it was this very <laughs> dichotomous couple months where I started working with Aaron Sorkin while getting visits from my probation officer <laughs> and working in a factory downtown for Ali's clothing company and doing community service. So it was just life. Wild, wild, wild life. Going back to you summarizing for Aaron Sorkin, things that you thought would resonate with him. He has a very distinct style and includes parental involvement, mostly on the father's side. He loves literary references. So in the movie, he talked about like Crucible, but what were some of the things that you really emphasized to him that resonated with him, if you can share? Yeah. Aaron Sorkin still wholly believes in the goodness in humanity and in values and a romantic view of the world. Oh, gosh, you throw your parents or your siblings or Jim Walden. This is a recipe for <laughs> success here. There had to be something there that made you feel restored some hope in humanity. A big piece of that was the fact that I didn't throw other people under the bus. That was a big piece for him. How long did it take from first meeting to the final movie making? Three years. Apparently that's really fast for Hollywood. <laughs> it must have felt glacial in speed. There was also drama when it happened. First of all, Aaron decided to make it his directorial debut, which was incredible. And I'm so happy he did. Secondly, I watched him go into rooms with studio heads. And the studio heads were like, you can't sell a drama with a female lead. You just can't do it. We don't want this movie about the girl. <laughs> and I watched him say, listen, I can't describe exactly this movie I'm seeing. You just have to trust me. And nobody gets that done except for Aaron. It's a short list of people that have that kind of trust. And I watched him put his reputation on the line. And then we had it set up at Sony and Amy Pascal was the chairwoman and she was super passionate about it. And then the movie, The Interview came out and Kim Jong-un hacked Sony Studios and all the emails came out and Amy had to step down and a new chairman came into Sony and was like, no, 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 we're not doing this movie. <laughs> and so we had to go to the festivals. I was like, 
are you kidding me? You're telling me that Kim Jong-un is going to ruin, I put it all together, I was on the way back, and you're telling me that this angry, petulant dictator is going to screw up my life? No way. Well, you can't have a normal natural disaster, Molly. It has to be something at your level, so it has to be a Korean dictator (laughs) that ruins it. The movie ended up being a wild success. The amount of awards, attention, all the accolades is so well-deserved. What was it like for you to see it for the first time? Where were you? Who were you with? It was terrifying. So Aaron and the producers were like, you need to sit in a room by yourself and watch this movie. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. I will not survive that. I decided to see it for the first time in Toronto. Now, mind you, there was a really good chance they weren't going to let me pass the border That's what they told me. I had to hire an immigration attorney and fill up this whole dispensation package. And they're still like, maybe they'll let you in. Maybe they won't. So I got past the border and then we show up for the premiere. It's 2000 people in a movie theater. My whole family. I've never seen the movie. I read the script three years ago. Just terror. (laughs) Oh my God. What if this sucks? And it's a long movie because Aaron's movies are all long. What if this sucks? And I have to sit here with everyone looking at me, (laughs) telling me that my movie sucks. It was this moment where I'm watching this highlight reel of the biggest tragedies in my life, the biggest triumphs, and people in the theater are crying, they're laughing, they're cheering. And I'm just sitting there connected with them, but also just so mind blown watching my life played by Jessica Chastain and scripted by Aaron Sorkin. And it was almost too much to unpack. Just deeply, deeply, deeply grateful. Oh my gosh. I cannot even imagine. You mentioned from start to finish, it took three years. How involved were you? Did Jessica Chastain meet with you, talk with your family? How involved do those actors get? Aaron's so funny. He called me when he finally decided to tell me that he was going to write it. He was like, I have good news and bad news. I'm like, what is it? He said, I'm going to write the movie, but you're going to have zero creative control. (laughs) I I was like, okay. And I thought about it for a minute. And then I called him back and I'm like, but I'm your only source material. (laughs) So Aaron and I worked together for eight months and it was just what an honor, what a privilege to see one of the biggest geniuses of our time in their process. He really brought me along for the ride. When he signed on, he would send me all the actresses and agents that were in contention. And it was very fun. And then I did spend a little time with Jessica and she's incredible. When they went off to film it, it was in Toronto and I couldn't leave the country, which is probably a good thing for everyone. (laughs) I was involved until they started filming. Incredible. So that movie came out about five or six years ago. How has your life changed after that movie? Even now, and people, my Instagram feed, everyone's reading the book and it'll be pictures of book or pictures of movie or both. And you just have these fans who are, the way you described the reception at the movie, people were laughing, they were crying, they were in celebration of you and they were rooting for you. And you could tell in all the social media that you see about this book and this movie, how has your life changed from that updated resume, as you call it, (laughs) or blasting your resume to the world? It's unrecognizable. You know, I think something that really resonates with people and gives people a lot of hope is this story about someone who just continues to get up. And I have people that say, this is my go-to when I don't feel like I can keep going. And I can't describe to you how much purpose that gives to my life. My dad leaned over to me 
when we were watching the movie and he said, this is going to give you a second chance. We knew that my life was going to change. I know how, but I thought that probably I'd be able to get a job. (laughs) (laughs) I was just looking for a job. (laughs) So you watch this movie, talk about second chances, but from that, what you're doing now, I find to be so beautifully mission led in terms of trying to help more people figure out how to do all the things, whether it's grit, resilience, positive mindset, all the things. But can you share with people now your extraordinary speaking that you do now and how and what the purpose is of that? I never thought I would ever have a career as a public speaker. It's just not my thing. But I started getting these opportunities and the money was too good to turn down. And I just remember the first time I ever spoke, it was 5,000 people in Vegas at Sirius XM. And it was just terrifying. And I was bad for a while. But as soon as I got through the nerves and I started to see the impact that the story could have and the lessons that I could impart and the things that I've had the privilege of gaining from really wise people in my life or really crazy experiences, it started to become just so, so incredibly fulfilling. I do a lot of speaking. I'm writing a second book. This book that I'm working on right now is about effective presence. And I think effective presence is one of the most transformative things that someone can build in their life. Effective presence is essentially the science of how you make people feel. It is a study in connection. It's so powerful. If you get into neuroscience and you look at the way that the human brain is designed and how emotions are the driver, there's that great quote from... Maya Angelou about people will forget what you said, but they'll never forget how you make them feel. And learning how to leverage that and learning how to cultivate that in an authentic way in your life is one of the most powerful ways to cut through everything. I have found that you do not have to be the smartest or most talented person in the room. You need to be the one that makes people feel good and that can understand how to cultivate connection and that it is just so powerful. And I absolutely believe it's a buildable skill. I think it's something that requires very little work and that can transform not only your relationships and your success, but ultimately can transform the world because connection is so important and we're losing. I'm just really very passionate about this. And there's just not a lot out there about effective presence. I'm working on a documentary. I'm writing another book about power. And at some point in my life, my big dream, my big goal is to create a gaming studio that makes games for good. Because I sat around and watched some of the people with the shortest attention spans, most access in the world, allergy to boredom. I sat around and watched them play this game with each other for endless hours. And when you strip away the gamification, they're running simple math probabilities. So the power of gamification it was not lost on me. And I believe that in the right way with the right applications, you can teach children skills that are hard to learn. You can teach adults, you can create more empathy. You can teach meditation. There are all these things that if you're able to successfully shroud it in gamification can be such an incredible way to lighten the load in a sense. So that's my big Sunday goal when Fiona goes to school. Knowing you, it's not going to be in 18 years. It's going to be in probably five. Oh, no, I mean preschool. (laughs) 
not college. No. Oh, that is incredible. I love it. Well, sign me up for both books and the game and all the things in between, because if you were a stock, I would totally buy as much stock as I could in Molly Bloom, because it's very clear your track record is one filled with, I love the thing you said earlier about input does not necessarily equal output. Your input is far greater than most in all these extraordinary things, but mostly filled with integrity and authenticity, which is very clear. And I would buy that all day long. Well, that's a huge compliment coming from you, my friend. That's too kind. All right. So I know you've been so generous with time. The questions I ask everyone, I will start with who or what inspires you? Moral courage inspires me. Compassionate power inspires me. And people who walk through incredible fear and hardship to come out the other side better. I love it. I know in a prior interview, you had mentioned one of my favorite books. It's Morgan Housel's book, The Psychology of Money. And I love the quote that you referenced. If you could share with people, it was the Joseph Heller quote. I loved that book. It was so philosophical. I was expecting this book just simply about finance. And it was just a beautifully philosophical book. So there's a story in there. It's about Joseph Heller, the author of Catch-22, is at a fancy party, I think in the Hamptons or something. And someone came up to him and said, Heller, how does it feel that this guy probably made today what you made during the entire duration and all the sales of your book? And Joseph Heller looked at him and said, well, I have something that he'll never have. And the guy said, well, what's that? And he said, enough. Chilling. So powerful. And you see that. You see that more disease, the hungry ghost, never enough. I've lived it. It reminds me of this other quote. I listened to an interview that Jim Carrey did. And he said, I wish everyone could be rich and famous and then realize that's not what it's about. I thought that was so powerful. Okay. What is your superpower? I just won't quit. (laughs) Stubborn refusal to quit. Love it. Can you share how luck has impacted your life? Good luck, bad luck. I just want to hear how you think about luck. I came into the world incredibly lucky. An incredible family mostly healthy. Scoliosis was a hiccup, but whatever. Live in this country, even to be born. When I was going through the whole IVF process and you look at those stats, luck has played a huge part in it. And there have been some unlucky things. But if I really look at it, my problems, most of them (laughs) have been of my own making. And I think it's a really powerful exercise to constantly sit back and say, What's my part in this? I could get all victimy about the guy that came to my apartment and assaulted me, and I'd be right. It was unfair. But what's my part in it? How am I continuing to let this person still have power over me? Getting angry about that. And also, I was in a dangerous world making really reckless, dangerous decisions. And I find that there's something so powerful about sitting back and assuming responsibility for all of it. Not in a punitive way, not in a, I'm going to punish myself in a really compassionate, really clear way that I have agency over the outcome. The name of the show is called Growth From Failure. And I usually ask everyone at the very end, if we haven't talked about it already, can you share your most transformative failure moment that ultimately gave you the biggest growth lesson? For you, gosh, I don't know where it would start, whether it was the 12-year-old or 13-year-old moment where you had surgery and decided to come back, or when you had this crazy black swan event while trying for the Olympic trials, or 
the arrest or all the poker. There's so many things. And maybe it's not just one, but can you share that feeling of the biggest struggle and ultimately how you got out of it? Yeah, it's not going to be what you think. When a full-blown train wreck happens, I'm so good at being like, okay, let's get into solution mode. It's very clear. There's been a train wreck. We're at rock bottom. We got to rebuild. Let's get into strategy. I had this moment after the movie was written. Aaron and company went to Canada to film it. And I went back to my life. And the producer, I'll never forget this moment. Mark Gordon is the producer and he is a lovely human being, but doesn't rave. Is very cynical. And he called me and he said, I just saw the movie. It's done. It's gorgeous. I'm in my life and I wait for that moment to change me. Because up until this point, I've said, the reason I'm not good inside is because of this, because of that, because of this, because my brothers are so much better, because I haven't been able to do the thing that I want. And I waited for that moment to change me. And it did not change me. And I still felt this existential emptiness inside and this drive to do more. And every time I got to the top of that mountain, it was never enough. We did not have a car wreck here. It was just this deep knowing that my methods for trying to find peace and contentment and enough were wrong. And so that led me on this five-year journey It's a lifelong journey, let's face it. But I really got very serious about it from this moment because I just had this fear and terror and ache because I thought this was it. Aaron Sorkin, highest paid screenwriter, is writing the movie (laughs) of my life. Yeah, This has to be it. And it wasn't. That's when I really got into meditation, more of a spiritual path, not religious, not woo-woo, but understanding about what it truly means to be a spiritual person in the world, to sit with discomfort, to do the right thing, to work on your character defects, all this stuff. It was that moment that was the biggest change. That was the biggest transformation. That is incredible. And not what I would have expected. Thank you for sharing that. One of the stories you ended the book on, I really liked where you mentioned this older gentleman who asked you, do you play poker? And you're like, no, I don't. And he goes, Poker's life, we all play. And I just love that because it happened to be very strong in your life story. But just the idea is it is true. And so now not only do you speak about effective presence, but I had the pleasure of being in Miami with you at the same time. And there's a reason why, whether it's business or investing, people ask you to speak in investment-related conferences because decision-making, whether it's emotional or not, that's such a critical part of all business. And I love that you bring in poker, but really it's about presence in so many ways. But last question, and maybe tying it into the movie, I usually ask what's next for the person. And for you, we talked about the books and we talked about your grand goals. But I love in the movie, and it's in typical Aaron Sorkin fashion of bringing in a literary reference. And he has such an emphasis about you and your name. And I just love that scene where Jessica Chastain says, because it's my name and because I cannot have another. What does the name Molly Bloom mean to you? Such a good question, Ian. I uh, I was named after my great-grandmother. It means lineage. And I share a name with a very famous literary character who was very non-conventional and controversial at the time in James Joyce's book. And so I've always felt akin to that. But it's changed a bit now since I've become a mom. And I really feel very passionately about retaining your own identity and not just becoming 
safe harbor for another human being. But my daughter and I have the same last name. Her last name is Bloom. Her name is Fiona Bloom. It's even more important to me now that I make the right decisions and my name means something to me and I can share that with her. But this is what I know for sure. Our journey, the hero's journey is not one of perfectionism. It's of persistence and growth and being willing to do the hard work. And so I guess our names and what they stand for and who they are, I think they should be ever evolving. And just with a really strong commitment to keep showing up and keep trying to do better and continuing to cultivate this friendliness and compassion for ourselves, for the journey, for other people. And to know that being a human being is in direct opposition with being perfect. So it's the journey. I love it. I saw this one saying during COVID that I adored and it's connection, not perfection. Molly, thank you for being so generous for your time. I had an absolute blast with you on the show. I did too. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Anne.